Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. I am so excited to tell you that InvestSmart and Intelligent Investor are long-term sponsors of this podcast. And here's something I want to tell you about. The Intelligent Investor Select Value Fund is a unique mix of global leaders and homegrown small caps poised for long-term growth. The portfolio manager is Nathan Bell, a talented investor you may have heard on the Rust Network multiple times. The Select Value Fund is designed for investors seeking international diversification and Aussie companies with superior financial metrics. You can invest today at intelligentinvestor.com.au slash IISV dash offer. That's intelligentinvestor.com.au slash IISV dash offer. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Ron, thanks for taking some time to join me on the show. Thanks, Owen. Thanks for having me. It's good to be recording in person in Sydney. It's the first time we've met, although I've seen you on Twitter, seen you you elsewhere. It's great. Um, There's so much for us to talk about. We'll talk about investment process, your story, um, companies, all the works. I think we have, like that mis- misery does love company, at least for me, it's misery on my side with EML, um, <laughs> not so much on your side. <laughs> oh, that's funny, misery. <laughs> yeah. um, but before we get to that stuff, can you take us back a little bit? Before funds management, you, you seem to have had a different life. Can you tell us what that was and how, that's, how that led you to investing? Yeah, sure. Um, probably my sort of path to, to funds management is, is quite unique and untraditional um, in the sense, uh, actually, I finished uh, an industrial engineering degree at uni, so I didn't really study any finance degree. And then after that, um, I was actually, I never actually went and, and worked in the corporate world. I was quite entrepreneurial. So I, I just started different businesses. Um, you know, I was involved in a marketing agency business. We helped small businesses sort of improve the digital branding and sales, uh, then had a retail business uh, in the fashion industry. Uh, then I launched a health, uh, health insurance for, for cats and dogs, pet insurance, together with RSPCA. Hmm. Did that for several years um, and uh, had a few other different businesses. And at the same time, um, you know, I was always quite passionate and interested in just generally how businesses work, how they make money. And I was always fascinated by entrepreneurs, people that, you know, set up successful businesses. And, uh, you know, I, I admire those kind of people. So I, I sort of self-taught myself through, you know, reading a few books, but I'm not a massive sort of investment book fan. And, uh, and sort of, uh, I kind of, I guess, had a, had a knack for understanding what's a good business, what's, a, what's not a great business. And the money that I was making from these businesses that I was running over time, I started investing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I did relatively well. Um, and, uh, and then I decided that, you know, investing really is just one of my passions in life. I just love doing it. It's, it's not work for me. It's like, you know, it's like, you know, the old saying of Warren Buffett sort of da- tap dancing to work kind of thing. Well, for me, it's just, yeah, if, uh, I do it at night, I do it on the weekends. I do it when I'm traveling. So uh, I started doing that. And then I decided that, um, you know, I wanted to, I said, well, if I'm good, I'm, I might as well set up a track record. And this was back sort of 13 years ago, back in 2010. And back then, um, you can see my age, but, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of finance and social media world wasn't as big as it is today, like the TikToks of the world and, and the Twitters. So there wasn't a lot of sort of content sharing and, and, and stock sharing ideas. Uh, so I launched a Facebook page called The Boat Fund. And I basically started uh, sharing my stock picking ideas, but it was really about also interacting with other investors. And back at the time, uh, there weren't many uh, social media sort of uh, share uh, investing uh, sh- uh, content pages. So it became quite popular. We had sort of, uh, I think, seven or 10,000 sort of you know, followers and it was a good interaction. Ran that for a year. It was really successful. Um, and then on the back of that, I got approached by someone in the industry 
Um, and he really liked my investing style, uh, which is more sort of small cap oriented. And he wanted to launch a fund with me. And then I teamed up uh, with him uh, and another friend. And we launched the boat fund, the real boat fund. <laughs> Why did you call it the boat fund? Yeah, so the, we call it the boat fund because actually I heard a really good story about two mates who um, decided that they wanted to buy a boat, but they didn't have enough money. So they started sort of, you know, trading together, sharing their ideas. And eventually they made enough money, they bought the boat. So really the idea was if we all get together, share our ideas, we can make enough money to buy our dream boat, which was really the theme behind the page. But it was really but more about myself establishing a track record somewhere that people can measure it, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that was why. <laughs> okay, because it's totally unique, right? Like nothing yeah, else. Yeah, and in fact, when we launched the fund and, and we ran that for uh, four and a half years, um, sometimes when we used to go to uh, company meetings with management, um, you know, they used to say, oh, the, the boat people are coming to see you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, that, so you said that ran for four and a half years. From what I could tell, the boat fund had a pretty good track record. Why did you close it? Yeah, well, actually we all, you know, I think as you know, in any business, um, you sort of, everyone wants to go a different direction. And so we were three business partners and we each wanted to do something different. Uh, and so we just decided that we're just gonna wind it up. Um, and then, uh, you know, I became a, a private investor for a while. And uh, then I joined, uh, you know, my current role with Tamim Asset Management. Uh, I started exactly on the 1st of January, 2019, and I've been with them for four and a half years. And I run two funds for them. And uh, yeah, it's been pretty good. And um, so that's kind of like the journey, which is quite, you know, I guess I have to thank Mark Zuckerberg. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, so, okay. So like you kind of got to... A lot of people say that they get to funds management in a very atypical way, but you definitely came to it in an atypical way in that it didn't seem like you were like a career fund manager, you know, one of those people that just like aspire to be a fund manager. You got into it because you were genuinely curious about investing and about businesses. Is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely. Like I said, uh, when I say it's one of my life's passion, it's it's really, you know, if I, if I sort of see if there's a company out there or something interesting to look into, you know, I will drop everything and look into that. Doesn't matter what time of the day, you know, if it's the weekend or wherever I am, you know what I mean? I, I just, I love it. It's exciting. And always, you know, finding that next opportunity, not just making money, but also the, the sense of satisfaction of, of, you know, being the first. And, you know, there is, there is one company that I think um, I've done really well. And this was back, back then in the day of 2011 or 12, it was Altium. I mean, okay. now everyone knows Altium, it's a, you know, ASX 100 company. But back at the time, you know, I found it at 50 cents. Uh, there was no broker coverage. No one knew about it. You couldn't even contact the management. And it was quite fortunate that uh, the guys that ran Altium were Iranian Baha'i. And that community is quite close-knit. And one of my friends was Iranian Baha'i. And through that, I managed to get access to management. And we realized this amazing software business that was actually being run by a founder that was, you know, a bit sort of had too many grandiose ideas and wasn't focused on profitability. And by them kicking him out was the catalyst to get the company to profitability and growing it under Aram, yeah. which took over and, you know, took it. And I wrote that over five years from 50 cents to um, $10. And um, unfortunately, we sold it then and went to 40. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Okay. So that's, that's a, a fantastic business is Altium. Yep. Yeah. It's wonderful. Um, and we'll get to, I want, I want to keep picking your brain some of these companies in a minute, but so for people, people that are like, like me, that are on Twitter, you're on Twitter, um, or on social media. And we talked off air before about like some AFR articles that have been <laughs> written or whatever about you. How do you think about like social media and because we'll talk about email because I that's the misery part of my end. But um, how do you think about that in your public persona? Yeah, my funds management journey started on social media and that was how I really mm. became known and, and started my career. I guess, um, you know, I guess, you know, uh, I've always continued to interact on social media. And, and interestingly enough, over the years, I, I don't use Facebook anymore. That whole finance 
discussion on social media has really switched over to Twitter. I mean, Twitter yeah. now is sort of the biggest platform, I think, for, for fin financial yeah, news. And, actually, yeah. yeah, so I think, you know, I mean, I, I like to, um, I mean, the way I, I view social media is that um, it, it's good to have a bit of a laugh. Maybe you can stare a few people up. <laughs> people get quite <clears throat> sensitive on social media. Um, and, uh, and sometimes you can get some really good information, some really smart people out there, and especially like a lot of uh, economic sort of news and data and charts and some really good people to follow. Uh, not so much maybe stock specific stuff. Uh, and, and there's also a lot of, a lot of petty hate <laughs> on, yeah. on Twitter, but you know, I just ignore it, but I guess maybe, you know, I guess, uh, you know, uh, with, with EML, there was an article by the AFR, you know, but yeah, I got it right here. Yeah. <laughs> but with Joe Aston and, um, look, EML, I mean, I guess I'll give the background to yeah, EML. Yeah, sure. So first of all, um, F, in terms of our fund, we actually did really well. So we bought EML at around a dollar 10 when I first joined in early January. And we wrote it all the way up. I mean, there was a bit of an up and down during COVID, but we wrote it all the way up for three years, close to you know $5.50. We took profits along the way and we made a lot of money. Um, and you could see that performance was, was really good for three years. Uh, and then in 2022, they started having the, the issues from the previous year with the, with the Central Bank of Ireland regulator. And everything really went to, um, you know. Hit the proverbial. Yeah, yeah. proverbial. And, um, and we like to, so when I look for a business, uh, I really like to back management, especially in the small cap space. You know, you can, you can put anyone to run, you know, the, the BHP or the big banks, but the small cap, it's all about the management teams. And what I've learned is also about directors, uh, which email told me a lesson. Um, but, you know, the moment that, um, so at the time they had the issues with, with PFS, um, the, the European division with the Central Bank of Ireland, uh, you know, and, um, from what what came out after is that when when the MD, which I was backing all those years, Tom Cregan, <clears throat> he resigned um, in um, uh, I think it was June uh, June uh, two thousand and twenty two uh, because the board rejected two takeover offers at significant um, premiums to the current share price. I think two dollars twenty five, and there was one before that at $5 and it was all in the AFR reported. And, and basically, um, you know, the board, I think the board directors had no interest in sort of uh, losing that nice cozy day job of sitting on the board of a global payments company, regardless of shareholder value. And the MG just couldn't deal with them. He quit. And then when he quit, we sold our shares. And that was in the dollar twenties or thirties, whatever it was at the time. And we, we, we went publicly on, you know, Osbys and whatever. And we said, you know, right now it's not investment grade because, you know, this mm. board can, is not, is not aligned with shareholders. Uh, and then what happened was, um, at the AGM last year, um, you know, uh, the chairman was ousted, voted out, really close call. And, and he was really the, the stumbling block. Um, and then it emerged that uh, an activist uh, fund, uh, Alta Fox from Dallas, uh, spent $20 million to buy shares uh, at around 60 cents. They took a 10% holding of VML. And we, you know, and we, we, we have interacted with Alta over the years. And um, our understanding was that um, they could see that, that, that you could unlock value in EML uh, by, you know, uh, probably divesting uh, the separate business units, which I'll explain. Uh, and then at uh, the February results a couple of months ago, uh, we saw the remaining sort of old reign of the board of directors kicked out as well. And the Alta came on the board with a couple of other guys that are aligned to them. And they've also announced <coughs> a strategic review uh, at the moment of the uh, PFS European business, which is a problem child. It's losing a lot of money. Um, and I think that even if they could just sell it for a dollar, for example, uh, suddenly by taking away the losses from the business, the group becomes much more profitable there's so much less distraction and then you can either focus on growing the other business units and it's essentially if you think about eml it's four business units so you've got the problematic pfs business you've got the global gift and incentive uh, business which is really the jewel in the crown of this company it makes probably 25 million dollars ebitda there's a lot of fat in there in terms of cost that an existing payments provider can buy it and probably make it 40 million dollar ebitda business and that business is very cash generative. Um, and that's probably worth $300 million um, in a competitive sale process. 
Uh, and then you've got the Aussie reloadable business, which again, is very profitable, makes maybe a 10 mil of EBITDA. It's got good contracts in the salary packaging space, long-term contracts, got some of the gaming uh, cash out uh, programs as well. And that probably fetches, you know, we've seen Pushpay get 16 times, probably gets anywhere between 12 to 16 times. And then you've got the Centennial open banking business in Europe, super high growth, break even. Now, when they bought it, and, you know, they pay 10 times revenue, multiples have halved since, but their revenue has doubled. So you could argue they could get the same amount of money, which is $100 million. So if you look at their balance sheet, um, you know, they, they have $80 million of cash. They've got, you know, $45 million um, of corporate debt. And then they have two uh, remaining uh, vendor payments to PFS of $20 million each in June t- next year and June 25. Now, we believe these vendor payments will be contested, and I doubt the vendors of PFS after everything are going to get it. But, you know, put that aside, they don't have like a balance sheet issue. They don't need to raise money. So we believe that you get rid of your PFS, you cut costs, the CEO has to go, Emma Shen. I think she's a disaster, and she's proven, you know, she came in last year after Tom resigned, really because of her regulatory experience. Well, you know, we've seen the announcement from the CBI after the results, and they said nothing has been done for the last 12 months. So what the hell is she doing? <laughs> so we think she needs to go. They need to cut costs. And I reckon they could sell this entire business for somewhere between $1.20 to $1.50 of net proceeds. And they won't pay any tax because they've lost so much money on Centennial that will offset any gains on the sale of the other divisions. So you're looking at the shares at, in the 50s at the moment. And potentially you could make two to three times your money uh, based on this scenario and we think that alta fox is not does not have the intention to remain on the board of a company for the long term they're a fund manager you know they see it as a special situation and everything they've done until now tells me that this is what they're planning to do so recording this just for to timestamp we're recording this on the 14th of april uh 2023 so okay so you mentioned before that you sold your shares the fund sold the shares when Tom quit because we, uh, you know, like I said, we like to back management. And when he quit, we just couldn't trust the directors after rejecting the takeovers, yes. So now do you own shares? Yeah, so we, and again, we went publicly after the AGM when the chairman was ousted, we started buying back in and it's, it, it is a, a top holding for us at the moment, yeah. Mm. And okay, okay, that's good. I appreciate the disclosure. Yeah. Um, so what would you say then are the risks to your thesis? So like I'm always a fan of inverting, right? Yep. So, I mean, there is, uh, I guess the risks are, is that nothing gets done, you know, PF, they, you know, well, I guess they could, they could shut down PFS, but if they decide to shut it down, there'll probably be 15, 20 mil of redundancy costs. Um, you know, nobody's going to want to pay up for any of the other businesses. Uh, but, you know, you could see these businesses get sold on, you know, several businesses like this gets sold every year around the world, and like especially the, the global gift and incentive uh, card business is, is, is very valuable. So, you know, I think if you do, if you run a proper sales process, it can get done. So the risks are, is that nothing changes, nothing gets done. It keeps, um, it keeps everything the same. And the stock, it becomes one of those zombie companies where sort of, you know, goes nowhere because it can't grow earnings and nobody wants to touch it. And, you know, but, why would a fund manager spend 20 million bucks, go on the board of a company, go to the hassle, all the legal advice and spend and everything of kicking out the board to not do nothing? It doesn't make sense to me. Mm. Mm. Do, you, do you get vocal with the company? Yeah, <laughs> I get very vocal. Other yes. than right here. <laughs> yeah, no, I get very vocal. Um, I mean, you could go, uh, go go to EML website, go to their AGM recording, and you could hear me <laughs> loud and clear. <laughs> yeah, I get very vocal, uh, you know, speaking to them. And, and, and since, since Alta came aboard, I've spoken to them many times and expressed what I believe, not only I want, is I believe other EML shareholders want to see, which yeah. is what I've expressed today. Yeah, right. Do you regret not selling all of your stake at the very top? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, look, look, the reality is, is that if you look, the, the initial thesis with EML, which worked for three years, right, um, 
was, well, actually it worked for, for many more years than that. I mean, the, the stock started at 20 cents or 10 cents, I think, got to $6 in May, 2021. I think the reality is the guys that were running it, Tom and the other guys, they were quite entrepreneurial, really good sales people. And they managed to build a great business, find really innovative use cases. Because in the payments business, you know, you, if you find new use cases for programs, so for example, the salary packaging stuff, the cash gaming cards, you know, when you have a, have a punt and you win some money, you can instantaneously access it on your yeah. virtual card on your phone and spend it. They came up with those ideas and then they went to the industry um, uh, companies and they sold them the idea, right? So they created new verticals, right? So they were quite entrepreneurial. I think what, what went wrong is when they acquired PFS and PFS was a good business, two things went wrong. One, let's be honest, they got extremely unlucky because of Brexit. In fact, you could probably blame this whole thing on Brexit. Um, because it forced them to go into Ireland, right? It forced them to have another e-money license outside of England because of Brexit. And now, and let's be clear here, the majority of payments companies in Europe operate out of Cyprus and Lithuania, okay? Not the central. In fact, the Central Bank of Ireland does not regulate fintechs. They regulate banks. And since the GFC, that's all they want to do. But the clever people at EML, and that's probably their mistake, they said, well, let's go to the Central Bank of Ireland because it's considered respected. So we're going to be considered like the best regulated um, fintech in Europe. But guess what? These guys, when they switched over all the programs of PFS over the course of 2021, at the beginning of 2020, sorry, over the course of 2020, the beginning of 2021, suddenly the Central Bank of Ireland started seeing significant amounts of, of money being processed through their money license. It was, it was huge, right? Because PFS was growing, it was mm. turning over billions of dollars. And then they said, what the hell is this? We never heard of this. What, what, what are these, all these you know, withdrawals and, and cash reloads and all these programs across Europe? We, we just regulate banks, right? So they freaked out, they audited the ML. And since then, it's been two years. Guess what? Not a single fraud was found. Not a single fine was issued. Where's, where's the breach by email? Show me. There hasn't been even a fine. Nothing, right? They couldn't find anything. The reality is they just didn't want to regulate the programs that email does, right? If email went to Cyprus, there wouldn't be an issue and the stock would probably be five bucks, six bucks, whatever it is, right? It'll continue to grow. And the second mistake was, I think, in a way, I think maybe the execution of this acquisition and may, maybe they didn't handle it well. Maybe they could have done things better. But as we found out, the directors outside of the management were really kind of, uh, you know, blocking everything. And um, they weren't really sort of uh, willing to work with management to change, change jurisdictions. You know, they could have switched. They could have bought a business uh, with another e-money license somewhere else, switched it over. The board wasn't interested. They saw it as a competitive advantage <laughs> staying. So I think, you know, that that's sort of really the reality. But the business of VML of just any payments company is really attractive to us. And it's similar to a software business. I mean, it's, it's, you want these really sticky, recurring transactional revenues where, you know, you can wake up every morning and you know exactly what you're going to earn pretty much for the next 12 months. Um, and it's very hard to switch. I mean, even with all the issues of VML the last two years, have they lost any customers yet? No, right? Because it's very difficult once you have all these cards out there to your customers, it's embedded within your system, you're processing all this money. It's very hard to switch. You know, it has to be like something has to really bad happen for you to switch, right? So uh, just like a software business. So they're great businesses, which is why they trade on big multiples. And unfortunately, you know, we thought this would be another Altium, you know what I mean? Where we could just back them for many years and this will be just one of those compounders and become like an ASX 100 company and so on. But it didn't work out. How do you think about like the contagion effect of a regulation? So, for example, the Central Bank of Ireland says, we want to check this system, this compliance regime. How are you doing this? How are you doing that? What happens if the Australian regulator sees that or whoever, insert, sees that and they're like, now we need to take a look? Definitely. I think just like, just like when you see a run on a bank and everyone loses confidence for no reason uh, because no one wants to be the last kind of, you know, uh, fancy sort of, you know, uh, so I think the same thing with regulators, I think more, more so in Europe. So I think that's why the FCA, which is the UK regulator, uh, you know, six months ago also decided, you know, what's going, what's all this noise for so long. And I'm sure the CBI was talking to them as well. Um, and, you know, and I guess, so there is a contagion effect and, um, 
you know, which is why sort of, uh, especially when you're in the payments business, uh, you know, I think reputation is important. But like I said, again, there hasn't been a single breach I find that's been issued for two years. So where, 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 you know, so to me, it just, it just sort of, it just, just, again, it cements the fact that it's more the CBI not wanting to regulate a business like EML rather than EML actually breaching anything serious. Hmm. Um, when you say it's a big position in a portfolio, how did you think about positioning? And like, I guess the, well, this is like a question more like your philosophy of like, how do you build a portfolio? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I guess everything is relative. Some people, some, I've heard some fund managers own 60, 80 stocks and they call themselves high conviction. You know, like everyone has their own interpretation. To me, I think um, there is a, a bit of a balance between, you know, diversifying uh, enough stocks across your portfolio to, to minimize risk. Because let's be honest, doesn't matter how much we think we know a company. Uh, we actually don't know much except for the people that are running it. And, you know, things can blow up on you and you don't want to bet your entire, uh, you know, client's money on, on one particular company. Um, obviously, uh, so I think to me somewhere between that 30 to 40 number of stocks in the portfolio is ideal, especially for, for funds management business. You know, for personal investors, you know, I think they can probably take on more risk. Uh, they don't have anyone to, you know, to kind of uh, report to. Um, so, you know, maybe 20 stocks. Um, so we usually hold somewhere around uh, 30 to 40 now usually so last year which was a really tough year um and there was a lot of uncertainties you know you had still COVID and lockdowns and supply chain issues and labor issues and we had inflation and rising interest rate there were so many uncertainties and things that could that could there were unknowns and a lot of companies were having issues and downgrades and this and that we didn't have the the conviction um to you know and so we, we remain a bit more diversified than usual we own 40 stocks um, can you get in not your fund though? Can't you go to cash as well? Yeah, we can go to cash. Look, my, I mean, we always have some cash, but look, I am, uh, I am what I would say, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm generally a bull. You know, I'm, I'm an optimist. I believe that over time, uh, you know, people uh, have a will to, to prosper and make money. And, you know, yes, you, you know, if you, I've heard a good saying, it says that, you know, bears may sound smart but bulls make money over the long term. I've been doing this for 20 years and you know I've seen the bull market of, of 03 or 07, I've seen the GFC and I've seen everything in between and all the, the pigs of the world that were meant to go. Uh, and then, you know, we've seen COVID, now we're seeing this, this you know, last year's bear market. Um, bear markets tend to be short. They tend to last maybe 15 months on average. And afterwards, bull markets last for many, many years, right? And, you know, I've, I won't forget there was a fund manager that went on the AFR front page uh, in April 2020 after the market was down 40%. And he said, I'm 100% cash because the next correction will be the best buying of a lifetime. And then, you know, we all made 100% right as the market recovered. So the point is, is that, look, you it's very difficult to time the market. And I think that... Um, you know, if I could, yeah, of course, in hindsight, if I knew I would have gone to 100% cash at the beginning of 2022, right? But no one really knows, right? I mean, you don't know how uh, markets will react. And, and I think we just try and focus on the companies that we own and the fundamentals which, within each company. And, you know, the market will do its thing in the short term. But over, over the long term, I think if a company continues to grow earnings, then I think the share price will appreciate. And as long as you can take some of that short-term volatility over the long term, you'll make good money. Mm. And, that's, and that's why we, we, we don't go to you know, significant levels of cash. We usually go anywhere between 5 to 20% is sort of where the, you know, we swing. Obviously, you run the two funds, the old cap and the small cap income. How, would you, if, how do you define your investment philosophy? Like, what are you out there looking to do? What kind of businesses are you looking to find? You mentioned like recurring businesses before with transactional income. You mentioned Altium, which is like a software for engineers and designers to use to design printed circuit boards. Yeah. EML is a payments company, transactional volume. What are the types of models that sit in your sweet spot and how do you find them in Australia? Yeah. So, you know, as I said, we're more biased towards uh, small caps. I think this is sort of the, you know, this is the best opportunity in Australia. I think the top 100 companies, is, there's not enough uh, sort of, I think, um, 
sort of, uh, you know, under the radar company, so to speak. And I think, you know, in the small cap space, you know, I would argue there's probably maybe two, 200 plus investment grade businesses. And at any point in time, there's an opportunity to buy, you know, 50 of those or whatever, right? Um, and a lot of them have really good businesses. The problem with small caps is that they have a good couple of years and then they blow up. And when I say blow up, they don't necessarily go bankrupt, but, you know, management can't execute. Um, you know, they can't take the company into the next level, uh, which, which was so great about uh, Altium is they were able to, you know, to continue growing and taking the company from a small software business to a big one, right? They're able to continue to execute. Um, so some, sometimes managers, managers or the management team reaches their limit. Um, and so you really have to, you know, you find a business that's going through, you know, it's good times and you try and find it early on. And if it ticks a lot of the boxes that you're looking for, and those are things like, obviously we want a business that's growing. We want a business that's not just growing, but we want to see uh, momentum picking up. So quarter on quarter growth, for example, right? Um, and then we want a business that, you know, profitable. We like profitable businesses. Uh, sometimes we'll take an exception to a business that's growing its top line really, really fast and, and scaling. And it's just sort of break even-ish. Um, we might sort of, you know, invest in that, but we don't do many of those. Um, and so we look at a business that, you know, profitable, generating good cash. You know, wh when it generates cash, you, you want to like dig deep into the, uh, you know, the cash flow statement because sometimes companies can manipulate that and they can put a lot of... Uh, you know, they, they can, for example, a software business might report a really good EBITDA number, but then you can see that they're capitalizing all the development costs in the cash flow statement. So actually they're making 20 million EBITDA, but zero free cash because they're also capitalizing $20 million. So you got to look at those things. Um, there's a lot of uh, trickeries that happen in mm. the, <laughs> in the P&Ls and the cash flow statements. And then businesses that, you know, ideally businesses that have good visibility on their revenue, right? So there's a lot of companies out there. We don't really, don't really like contracting businesses. So there's a lot of, you know, civil contracting, infrastructure, mining contracting businesses, very profitable businesses. But they, you know, they're only good for the next six to 12 months. And then beyond that, there could be a cliff of, you know, of, of not being able to fill that revenue hole, for example, right? And, you know, contract-based businesses, a lot of things can go wrong. And we're starting to seeing that now with contractors with, you know, cost blowouts and so on. Um, and balance sheets are really important. So we're looking for businesses that don't have too much debt. We don't mind some debt as long as the company can, can manage it really well. Sometimes there are good businesses that are in turnaround modes and they maybe have some debt from the past. But if, if, the, if the core business is good, then um, you know, under a new management, you could see a path to come out of it, recapitalize the company, and you can actually make a lot of money. Um, we did that in our previous, uh, my previous fund with Vision Eye Institute. You know, it was loaded with, with, uh, with debt, uh, but it was a really solid business. Eye doctors, eye surgeons, uh, super profitable, making free cash, had too much debt. We picked it up. Um, I'm trying to remember maybe at 10 or 20 cents. And then it went, and then they, they recapped, and then it went to a dollar, right? So you can find these opportunities, turnaround stories, as long as the core business, the fundamentals are good. So we like businesses that have visibility on what they're going to earn. Um, and then really, you got to look at the management team. Now, like I said, you know, I think if we put myself or you to run BHP, we, we can't blow it up, right? We might not do a great job, but we're not going to blow it up. It's too big. Uh, <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know much about mining, yeah, but I get you. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, the, the guys that are, are, you know, the people that are running uh, small cap businesses, you got to look at their track record, the incentives, you know, you know how much uh, skin in the game do they have mm. um, and what, what have they done in the past, right? So, you know, I think, uh, you know, after this, for example, a good example would be like, say, Tom Cregan, for example, with EML, right? His next venture, maybe when he comes back to the ASX, you know that he's the kind of guy you want to back in the early days of a growth company because great salespeople, entrepreneur, right? But maybe as they get bigger, maybe he's not the right person, right? Because he's shown us uh, some flaws. For example, right? I'm just yeah. giving that as yeah. a current example. But and by doing, I've been doing this for 20 years, and then every day Australia is quite a small country. You kind of learn, you know, you remember names, you remember what they did over the years, and you, you quickly see how oh, this company, oh, this guy's on the board, oh, he was a disaster, right? Avoid. Or yeah. this guy, he's a gun. 
you know, he, he made us a lot of money back then. We're going to back him, right? So I think it's important having longevity in the industry um, because people behind these businesses are, are key um, mm. to success. How, what would, what would your average holding period be? Because you mentioned that there's like a, first lot of small caps, there's like a two, three year window. Like it seemed like you held Eltium for a few years and you held EML for a few years. Yeah, so let's be clear. When we buy a business, um, so once it ticks all those boxes I spoke about, then you obviously try and forecast sort of what, what's going to earn for the next couple of years. You mm-hmm. meet with the management um, and then you, you, you model it and you, value, you try and put a valuation on it. Um, and say, you know, it's worth a dollar and it's trading at 50 cents. Well, you know, ideally, if everything goes to plan uh, and nothing fundamentally changes, you just want to keep holding this and backing it until it reaches your value. And that value will, it's a continuous, it's, it's fluid, right? It just keeps changing based on fundamentals. Might go up, might go down, right? Uh, I recall when we bought Altium back in the day, uh, you know, 50 cents, we, we, could, we couldn't value it more than $1.50, right? But as they continue to execute, the valuation kept going up, right? So there's no reason, same thing with EML, right? We bought it at a dollar, you know, they kept executing, growing, it was worth more, right? So we like to back businesses over the long term, as long as the fundamentals don't change and the valuation doesn't get excessive. If the valuation gets excessive, then we either take profits, but maybe maintain a smaller holding, or we completely exit because there's better opportunities. Because like I said, we don't want to own 60 or 80 companies, right? And there's always opportunities, always just constant opportunities because a good business uh, suddenly becomes a bad business because of some issues and then you can buy it cheap or some company gets sold off for, for no reason and it's a great business so you can buy it. So there's all kinds of, it's, it's, it's very fluid. And, and that's why I think that's why we would sell a business. Fundamentals changed, valuation got excessive, or there's better opportunities with better upside. How do you value, uh, say, a typical company? So not like a turnaround or something like that, but like an L team in the early days or an EML in the early days? Yeah, well, actually, see, that, that's, that's the thing, right? Uh, if you look at the L team at 50 cents, you wouldn't touch it, right? It was first year of making a profit, right? If you look at the previous yeah. five years, it looked like a disaster, right? Loss making. Um, so that's why sometimes the best opportunity is if you look at their financial history, it looks, it looks horrible, right? But generally, uh, you know, if, if there's a business out there, we, we like to value it on several methodologies. So the first one is obviously a DCF. So, you know, using a, a classic DCF model, trying to, you know, forecast what it's going to make um, and then discounting back to today. And then also, I think it's important to look at the, the peers within its industry, the other listed peers, what sort of multiples, whether it's EV to EBITDA or PE multiples they're trading on. And then if, you know, if the, if, if the average is maybe 10 times and this business is trading on five to six times, then you could see that the market, if the business executes, the market will uh, re-rate the valuation and will get a higher multiple. And that's how you make your money. Mm. Um, I think it was Retail Food Group that was in a recent write-up that you did, uh, which is the owner of Gloria Jeans. And it's like an old school franchise, not old school, but it's like a franchise style, style model. It's been through the ringer over the last five years. Um, like you can look at the share price chart at one point in time and it was probably like one of the worst performers on the ASX. <laughs> it's down, I think it's down like 90, 90% over yeah. the last 10 years or something. Yeah. yeah. Can you describe like why does that appear in the portfolio today? Yeah, so um, this is like a, a, a business that we took a position, I think late last year, around five, six cents. Um, look, this is, this is one of those classic turnaround stories where we think that there's a really good underlying core business, um, which was managed really badly in the previous years by the previous management team. Um, and then for a successful turnaround, like I said, you want an underlying good core business. And we think that, you know, that their franchising and their, their brands are quite good. I mean, um, Donut King, they're killing it. It's great, right? Try their hot cinnamon donuts. Right? <laughs> okay. after, after that burger. <laughs> um, um, you know, they've got Gloria Jeans. It's doing quite well, especially the drive-through model. They've got um, Crust Pizza. I mean, we all know Crust Pizza. It's a great brand. Uh, and they've got a few other ones, Baker's Delight maybe. Yeah. Um, or Brumbies. I can't remember. Brumbies. Yeah, Brumbies. Yeah. Um, and so it was just badly run by the previous management. They just completely ripped off their franchisees. There's probably a bit of fraud, way too much debt. It was, it was an absolute disaster, right? 
Um, this was a few years ago. Then a new management came on board. So that's a big tick for a turnaround. You got to have a complete new management team. And the guy that's running it now is, is really good. Um, cut cost, recapitalized the entire company, made the banks forgive them a lot of the debt, which is always a good sign. Hmm. And recapped, a lot of people put in money. I think it was a, don't quote me on this, uh, 10 plus cents, right? So other people paid for the recap, not us. Hmm. And we've watched it for the last couple of years. Now they had a few ACCC issues and class action that's all been done already in the last few months that's all been settled so you, you no longer have an overhang they've improved the brands they, and more importantly they've improved the relationship with their franchisees right so the franchisees now are happy they're making money right um, and if the franchises are making money i think these are the kind of businesses that are going to do really well in maybe sort of the tougher times and especially with tourism picking up because you know uh, they're, they're located in sort of you know in all the shopping centers and shopping strips and you know the average transaction a value is um, is ten dollars, right? So this is not a hundred dollar spend kind of business. It's ten dollar average transaction value. So, and that's why I think you're seeing Gloria Jeans uh, and especially uh, Donut uh, King doing really well at the moment, right? So I think um, they turned around uh, the businesses, the franchisee relationships, back to profit. I think this year they're going to grow profits by forty percent to maybe twenty eight million dollars of EBITDA. Mm -hmm. They generate uh, cash flow. Um, and now, uh, so, you know, when we bought it, it was on a hundred, uh, you know, a hundred and a hundred million dollar, I think market cap, they have a got, they, they had about $25 million of net debt. And a couple of months ago, they basically decided that, you know, the turnaround is complete and now they're on the growth journey. Right. And for them to grow, they needed to spend some money. Um, they, apparently Gloria jeans is killing it in the U S and they have demand from a few franchisees in Texas, San Antonio, and whatever, to, to open 100 of these Gloria Jeans drive-through, um, which could probably make them about four to five mil of incremental EBITDA to RFG Group as the franchisor. Uh, and then they're going to bring a US brand, a joint venture to launch in Australia, you know, something along the lines of like, uh, what, you know, just like uh, uh, CK, uh, KFC brought, um, Collins Food brought um, a Taco Bell, for example, something like that, right? Like, I don't know, one of those chicken or burger brands or whatever. I think maybe it will be successful, but for that, they need, they need to spend some money uh, to open stores. Um, and then just generally other growth opportunities. I think they can roll out more Donut Kings and more uh, Gloria Jeans drive-throughs in Australia. So now they needed to, they, so they had some debt with the banks, which was June, September this year. So they had to raise some money. So the, you know, NZ just wanted out because they took, they took a $40 million hit back in the day. So they said, we don't want this on our books anymore. So <laughs> they, did a re, they did a capital raise together with the, one of the largest shareholders, Washington H. Saul Patterson, which is well-respected, the, the Milners. Um, they also lent them uh, a $25 million um, convertible note over three years. So to us, it's like a friendly debt. It's not like a bank debt. You know, the, the biggest shareholder, they're not, they're not gonna, they'll be friendly to them. And uh, they raised the money. And I think uh, the stock, I think that, you know, the stock will now kind of will need to show uh, that they can continue to grow and they need to show us uh, execution of all these things that I've spoken about. And if they do, you look at sort of your Domino's, your Collins Foods, they're all trading on, you know, 20 times PEs, right? This thing is trading on, you know, nine times. Mm -hmm. So it ticks all the boxes for a good turnaround, good underlying core business brands, you know, financially good, and they've done everything and now you we're coming in for the growth journey you know and, and we like that mm. that's a great thesis so thank you for going through that um i've got one more just like pie in the sky type question and um i've got a few to close this out but what's the best business model you've come across in the asx but it doesn't have to be something that you own it could be something that you maybe passed on or something that you see maybe it's a large cap that you don't own what's the best business model you've come across and why yeah I'll probably go back to Altium. Um, I just think, not because, you know, I've, I've owned it in the past. It's because, um, you know, I, I, like I said, I think software businesses, if they run well, uh, are probably the best businesses in the world. Um, you build software and then you can sell it, you know, a million times, right? And people pay you, company, your customers pay you every month or every year. It's very sticky. Everyone gets used to using it and it's too hard to switch, right? It's like me using the iPhone 
if I switch to a Samsung, it's a disaster, right? Uh, it's like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe you're the opposite. No, no, I'm, I've got an app. Yeah. So, um, so it's the same thing. So I think they're really great sticky businesses. And you can see that well-run software businesses can get to um, EBITDA margins of close to 50% in many cases, right? So um, I think that they, they generate a lot of free cash, high margins, and therefore the market is willing to give them very big multiples, right? Um, you know, our team trains a hundred times P maybe, um, or 50 times P or whatever. So mm. I think those are the ultimate business models and the companies that we like. And I would argue that Altium has proven over the last 10, 12 years that it's got a consistent track record of delivering and growing and all the metrics, you know, are st stack up for probably one of the best businesses on the ASX. Mm. That's fair enough. I'd probably have it in the same regard, to be honest. Uh, so. I've got a, just a few really shorter questions. Quick one though, what's the most overrated investing book? You said you don't read that many. What's the most overrated? If someone wanted to learn about the craft of investing. Yeah. Look, I think, I think there's nothing wrong with reading books. I think everyone, you know, people, there's all kinds of investors that, uh, that write different books and they all have different techniques or ways of investing and valuing. My only advice is don't get hung up about one particular method, right? Because it can work in some cases, but then it's actually quite faulty in many other cases. Um, there was one book I remember back in the day uh, that used the return equity valuation methodology. And again, that, that can, you know, that, that can be quite deceiving and, and cause you to buy businesses that may look cheap, but it's actually not that true. Um, mm. I, I would say the most overrated, and look, don't get me wrong, I, I love Warren Buffett and I read his book back in the day. I think probably the, the Warren Buffett or the Buffettology books maybe the most overrated everyone has to, to quote him and so on but the reality is for us aussie investors you know warren buffett way of investing i don't think applies as much because like i've explained it's a very small country australia not many people and so in the us you can find a great business and for example if we look at a retail business right you can find a business that will go from one store to six thousand or ten thousand stores over 20 years right in Australia, they go from one to a hundred and they're a mature business, right? Or 200. So I think, um, you know, the businesses here are more limited by, you know, the, 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 the growth ceiling. And so, like I said, you know, they might have a few good years and then they, they reach a, a problem. Also generally, uh, you know, and then Australian company try and go overseas. And so I think that the, the Buffett way of sort of, you know, holding for the long term and looking for certain things or the certain modes that, that he looks for. Maybe they don't apply to, to many Australian companies. I mean, there are some, but yeah. So maybe that's probably a bit overrated because it's used too much as an example, you know? And, yeah. and, and, I, and I find that there's a joke that like every time like a fund manager, we have a bad month, we all start to think about which Buffett quote to use, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fair. You should have a drink every time you think about it. Um, okay. So two more. Um, in your opinion, how, like how does your definition of risk or investing risk differ from what academics would teach i know you didn't study act like the academic version of it but you're obviously aware of it how do you think about investing risk yeah i think um and again because we're more in that sort of small to mid cap part of the market i think the biggest risk that i've realized to a company is is the people that are running it and it's a difficult risk to quantify which is why you can't teach it in in university or in the books right i mean how, how do you you know how, how do you sort of quantify the risk of a certain individual. Um, I think, yeah, the people that are running these businesses are the biggest risk um, because like I said, there's, there's some great businesses out there, but they were run by some awful management teams that completely destroyed them. And then when a good management team comes along they turn it around, suddenly you have a wonderful business, right? So I think that is the key risk that I think is maybe sort of not considered by others or unable to quantify. And it's something that it's like a work in progress. I mean, you can't, you can't always avoid it because you might think that these guys, you know, these people that are running this business are good, but then you realize that actually they don't have the same, they're not aligned to you. You know, they have different incentives. Mm. They just want to keep their cozy fees or whatever. Right. So, um, yeah, it's one of those things. And like I said, longevity in this business and knowing people is probably how you mitigate some of this risk. Mm. Um, actually, I just thought of a cheeky question to ask you on the fly in the Aston, 
article he said email rocket man are we still going to see more rocket emojis yeah so look the, the rocket emoji is, is only for <laughs> bull markets someone <laughs> so i'm only going to bring that back when we're in the in the next bull market okay <laughs> but that wasn't my serious question my serious one is a hard one to answer i think i don't have an answer for this a very good one anyway um what's one thing that you believe about finance business investing maybe even life that few people would agree with you on um i think you know, f- first of all, I think that, you know, what the investing and, and this world of funds management, investing and so on is quite a, an, an emotional roller coaster, right? Um, you know, you, you go through the good times and everything is great. And then you go, you, you, all, all of us make mistakes. Uh, we all lose money at any point in time uh, and, and we go through rougher times. And I think, you know, I think you just, you gotta, you gotta enjoy what you do, um, not take things, you know, too, too seriously and try and, you know, try and remember that, um, you know, investing is cycles and things come and go. And, you know, you may have a really bad year or two, but, you know, the cycle will turn and then things will, will start going good again. And I think if you, if you've got the right businesses, be patient and you'll be rewarded over the long term. That that's the way I, I look at it. Mm, that's good advice, mate. Um, so the the two funds that you run, I believe, are wholesale investor only, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and more information can be found on the Tamim website. Uh, I've got to say thank you to the ASA for putting this together uh, and bringing our two worlds together. And uh, anyone that's more interested in the Australian Shareholders Association can find a link in the podcast player and uh, that will take you to get a membership, uh, discounted membership as well. But Ron, thank you for taking a trip across town to come and join me on a rainy day in Sydney. I really appreciate your insights and and being so forthcoming. Thank you, Owen. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Before you go, I wanted to share some things with you. Specifically, I wanted to tell you about the 10 ways that Rask could help you in 2024. As many of you know, Rask has grown to become one of the biggest investing and finance platforms in Australia. Across our podcasts, our websites, our memberships, and so on, we now engage around 200,000 Aussies. Which, considering we started in a humble lounge room on a Kmart desk, one of those old fake white wooden ones, I'm pretty ecstatic about where we are six years later. As part of becoming one of Australia's biggest platforms for wealth creation and preservation, we now have a very special position in the country in that we can bring you some of the best, most thoughtful, expert-driven ways to protect and grow your wealth. And I'm going to share some of those with you now. I've got 10 ways that we can potentially help you or match you with someone who can. The first thing that I want to tell you about is the biggest step we've ever taken at Rask, which is the launch of our Rask Invest platform. This is a platform that lets our team, led by me, invest for you, primarily through low-cost, diversified ETFs. We'll have three strategies at launch, And every investor who comes through can pick one of the three strategies being a balanced strategy, a growth strategy, and a high growth strategy. The balanced strategy focuses on passive income and the high growth strategy focuses on longer term compounding. You will find a link in your podcast player to register your interest. We will be taking off soon. Number two, if you prefer to DIY your investing, you can join me and over 4,000 members inside Rascore. That's our full ETF and ASX share research membership community. You can join now and you'll get updated ETF portfolio recommendations every quarter, as well as ongoing ASX and global stock research. Every single month, we call them the all-star stocks. You get that alongside the ETF portfolios as well as other members-only content. It's called Rascore. Number three, our first ever partnership with a business other than our own was a business by the name of Blusk, which has since become Flint Group. Flint Group is led by Chris Bates and Christian Stevens, two of Australia's most highly regarded mortgage brokers. Already over 200 Rask community members have begun the Rask 
plus Flint Group mortgage broking process. You can click the link in your podcast player if you're refinancing, investing, a first home buyer, or whatever. You've probably heard Chris on the show many times. Number four, you can connect with our most trusted financial advisors. Whether you're 25 years old, just graduated uni and looking to set yourself up or approaching or in retirement and you've got that nest egg you want to protect and generate a passive income from, you can get in contact with our trusted panel of financial advisors. You can find the link in your podcast player. It's there each and every week. Just click the thing that says financial planning. Number five, if you want specialist insurance advice, as Warren Buffett said, rule number one is don't lose money. And rule number two is don't forget rule number one. Insurance is vitally important, especially when it comes to your number one asset, you. Whether you're a single income household or a couple and you just want to protect what would happen if. You want to protect your family if something goes wrong. You want to protect your spouse if you lose your job. You want to protect yourself if you hurt yourself on the weekend at footy. Insurance is a way to do that. And I think the best way to do insurance is through a financial planner. And there's a few reasons for that. But one of them is sometimes some insurers will only work with financial advisors, but they can also be your companion as you go through the sometimes daunting process of getting insurance done properly. Sometimes you might not even know, but you're not even covered, even though you think you are. So get the right advice. You'll find a link in the show notes to check that out. Number six, buying property. If you're like me and you're thinking of buying property in the next 12 months, or maybe you've already invested and you're looking to downsize, getting the right advice and being able to build wealth through property is a proven strategy. It might be one of the most contentious, but I think that we have one of Australia's best property coaches in our ranks. That is Pete Wargent. Pete is the host of the now super popular Australian property podcast by Rask, and he's also my analyst team's macro consultant. So if you're a member of Rascore, you will have seen Pete's name around the traps. He's a property coach and buyer's agent, and he works with a select number of people each and every year. Just a note on this. This is not a commercial thing with Pete. Pete just has great services, so we offer them to the community. And when he fills up, he fills up. You can find out more about Pete's coaching in the show notes. Next up, tracking your portfolio for tax. I think you are because I think you have to. So we've partnered with Nevexa to help you manage your share and ETF reporting, whether it's tax or performance. All Rask users get 20% off an annual plan with Nevexa. You can sync your portfolio with Nevexa's software and it automatically tracks your dividends, your capital gains tax, and more. Again, not a commercial partnership. We don't make anything from working with Nevexa, but they do create some great tools which the Rask community uses each and every day. Number eight, want to run your own business? Maybe you already do. If you want more profit, but less stress, less time consumed, and less energy lost, get in contact. We have a partner business called Inflection. The Inflection Accelerator Program is a complete online course that helps you and a community of members engage and follow a proven strategy for growing your business. I'm grateful to be one of the coaches inside the Accelerator program, helping business owners right across Australia. You can find more following the link in your podcast player. It's the one that says coaching. Number nine, if you haven't already checked it out, join over 20,000 other people who tune into the Rask YouTube channel. It is completely free and you get notified when we go live and when we publish podcast episodes. There is a podcast on the Rask network each and every day, as well as bite-sized material that's less than 60 seconds or those really punchy tutorials and webinars that are just 15 minutes that take you through a really exciting topic, whether it's how to buy a property, whether it's how to pick a dividend ETF. Some of our most popular content actually just explains things like, what the heck is franking credits and how do I calculate if I've got some? That's on our YouTube channel. Number 10, if you want to be a better investor, a saver, a better partner with money, or just understand your own relationship with money, you can do that all of that by going to the Rask Education website and taking a free course. We've enrolled over 26,000 students at the time of this recording, and we are on a mission to get to 100,000 in the next few years. Rask Education is our mostly free education platform covering everything from budgeting and automation to the 
probably, I would say, the best value investing program in the country. So whether you're a value investor, an intermediate investor, you want to know how to value Woolworth shares, or you simply just want to understand what ethical investing is or buy your first property and what actually happens on settlement day, head to the Rask Education website and enroll in something today. It is free and it supports us because then I can come on here next month and I can say we've got 27,000 and hopefully we reach critical mass where we can help more Australians manage their money better. Thank you for listening to this long-winded ad. If you want to get in contact with me, you know where to go. There's a link in your show notes. Basically, these 10 services, even though some of them we don't make any money from, support RASC and allow us to produce these podcasts, attract the biggest and best guests from Australia and around the world, and bring them to you to answer your questions. Thank you for being part of the RASC network, and thank you for your ongoing support. Bye for now.